Good afternoon and welcome to uh, Jordan McDuff, J.S. McDuff. Um, today we're going to be talking about the kernel of untruth. We're going to be talking about the tale of two Jesuses. The Jesai, if, if, uh, if you will. I don't like that word at all. However, uh, today we'll be discussing the differences between the true Jesus Christ and the Jesus of Mormonism. And uh, I'm going to go into uh, much detail and distinguish the two. And in order for me to distinguish the two, I'm going to try my hardest to make sure that it's clear that one is the Mormon Jesus, the not true Jesus, and one is the actual Savior. I'm going to make sure. Now, if you want to, you can check out my notes on this video. They are below in the description. I am making this document that I'm reading off of live for anyone to read over and to copy and paste and to look it over. And in fact, I even added um, some chat GPT um, resources at the bottom. I just kind of quickly snipped in a few things that I talked uh, to chat GPT about, about this, because that's really where I'm getting a lot of my information from on this. I'm essentially acting like ChatGPT is a Mormon because ChatGPT is really good at being very neutral and very to the point. There's no emotional wishy-washiness that you get with typical Mormons. So, and you do actually get that a lot with um, with ChatGPT. A lot of the uh, signature Mormon relativism actually comes in quite a bit, and I'll talk about that later as we come in. However, the reason why I'm making a distinction between the Christian Jesus and the Mormon Jesus is because of what Jesus said himself. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me completely scatters. So, it makes it all the more important to clarify our definition of who Jesus is when someone seems to present an alternate reality of who Jesus actually is. So, this is one of the most important reasons why we should care, because you get all the time, people ask you all the time, like, why do you even care? Like, why are you even wasting your time talking about this? It's because of truth's sake. Because of truth's sake. There is nothing more important than truth. Truth will set you free. John 8, 32. And you will know the truth, and truth will set you free. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, and rightly handling the word of truth. So, Mormons, you guys believe that you guys also read the Bible. So your version of Jesus should not, by any means, contradict the Bible. The Book of the Mormon and the book of the Bible should not contradict. And uh, it's going to be a big day for us today. So I'm pretty excited about it. So there is a there is a biblical calling for all of us here in this world to chase truth. And there can only be one truth. Now I'm going to go over this very briefly. There has to be only one truth. One absolute truth. Otherwise, nothing matters. Absolutely nothing matters whatsoever. Nothing that anyone says can have any bearing on anything. If nothing matters, if there's no such thing as absolute truth, then there is no such thing as absolute truth. That in and of itself is an absolute statement. So there is absolute truth because you say there is no absolute truth. So where there is light, there is no darkness. And where there is darkness, there is no, I mean, where there is darkness, there is no light. They cannot coexist. Absolutions and relativism cannot exist in the same time. And this is really a statement about relativism and more about 
the sand, the foundation of sand that Mormonism has created, the shifting, constantly moving the goalpost ideas. So we're going to we're going to jump into this today. We're discussing um, verses in the Mormon Bible about the nature of Jesus and how they define him and how it differs from the real Jesus of our Savior. First and foremost, we need to understand how Jesus came into being. How did Jesus start? Like, where did the where did Jesus start from? Well, for the longest time, Christians and atheists like let's like remove Mormons for for a moment. Christians and atheists have had this conversation, and the atheist always says, "Okay, well, if God created the universe, then who created God?" And no one has ever said that God was created. That idea is something to be added to the Bible. Because, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. As Isaiah 40, 28. So, um, I find this to be really well explained in this video here. In order to recognize that an explanation is the best, you don't have to have an explanation of the explanation. In order to recognize that an explanation is the best, you don't have to be able to explain the explanation. Folks, this is an elementary point in the philosophy of science. Suppose astronauts were to find on the backside of the moon a pile of machinery there that had not been left by American or Russian cosmonauts, uh, what would be the best explanation for that machinery? Well, clearly it would be some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence that had left the machinery there. And you don't have to have an explanation of who these extraterrestrials were or came from or how they got there or anything of that sort in order to recognize that the best explanation of this machinery is intelligent design. In order to recognize an explanation as the best, you don't have to have an explanation of the explanation. In fact, when you think about it, requiring that would immediately lead to an infinite regress of explanations. You would need an explanation of the explanation, but in order to recognize that as best, you need an explanation of the explanation of the explanation, and then an explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the explanation, and so that nothing could ever be explained. One of the outdated philosophical cliches, in my opinion, is that, well, who created God? We hear that all the time, and they think it's a baseball bat against the theists. But it's made of sponge. And let me tell you why. If we say what caused the cause that caused the universe, then let's continue. What caused the cause that caused the cause that caused the universe? Let's continue. Then what caused the cause that caused the cause that caused the cause that caused the universe? Let's carry on. And that goes on and on and on backwards, but at one point, I have, I have to have an uncaused cause. So yeah, you need these infinite regressions, these constant infinity of regressions in order to arrive at the end of the, the reality of God, right? So Occam's razor typically is the, fi is, is the final point, right? It's that 
is that in order for us to have an explanation, we don't have to explain the explanation. Okay, now this is relevant to the Mormonism because they say that Jesus was created. Now there is no biblical evidence for this. Jesus was never created. All things were created through Christ. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Psalms 92. 92. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth, the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So there is no earth without Jesus. There is no anything, nothing, without Jesus. The dichotomy of this conversation between Mormons and Christians is a really interesting one because, frankly, if I was an atheist listening to me correcting a, a Mormon and a Mormon talking to me, um, I would revert to mocking. Like two people just debating over the Marvel comics, uh, the lore of the Bible, and nerding out over religious texts. Like I'd just be, and, and, and what, this is giving fuel to a mockery that the atheists look for. Right, so not only is Mormonism hurting one ministry, they're hurting multiple. Because of the amount of banter that goes back and forth, The if I was an atheist, I would make fun of you guys. I would say, like, well, you guys don't even know what a Christian is. How can you guys even convince me as an atheist that there's a God when you guys can't even figure out who actually Jesus is? So it just gets to this crazy point. This is not a religion. This is the world's first blog. Okay, I also want to clear this down. Is that the reality is that the Mormon church has in intentionally created volumes and volumes and volumes of material to slow down the, the progress of Christians. Okay, this is not a religion. This is the world's first blog, ever-changing theology of falsehood. And by the time you get to one point of debating any points, by the time you get to the point where you're trying to get to, that theology's already changed. It's already been rewritten or completely snuffed out, completely erased, forgotten, classified, whatever they want to put in a vault, just to protect the church from controversy. They, they do all this on purpose. But the eternality of God the Father is also the eternality of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The eternality of the Father is the eternality of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They are all eternal. Okay? You have to understand that the Holy Spirit has its role to play. Okay? Being under the authority of God the Father until Jesus died. On the cross, when he died on the cross and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now, it didn't, that, not in that order. Okay? G, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Okay? And then, the Holy Spirit was in Jesus. And then when he died, the Holy Spirit... You know, once Jesus ascended, then the Holy Spirit came after under the submission of Jesus. Okay, it used to be the Father, now it is Jesus. And the reason why it's written this way is because it, the Spirit in and of itself, under the Father's will, used to do things like rush upon people and started to stir within people. I use uh, Samson a lot. You can find this in Judges 13, 14 and 15, where it says, like, uh, the Spirit rushed upon him. But it doesn't say it rested. It says it constantly is moving. It's starting to stir. It's starting to rush. It's doing all these things. And what it's doing is it is completing God's sovereign will. Okay. So, for the example of Jesus, the Holy Spirit rested on him like a dove. And in my very limited understanding, then he placed himself in the position of submission to Christ's authority. 
And after uh, Christ's death and ascension, the Holy Spirit was released throughout the world, which is where we get the word, for God so loved the world, right? So now it's not just limited. The ministry of God is not just limited to the Jewish uh, communities, like in the Old Testament. It's not just limited to Jesus's feet, right? Because before the gospel was limited to only Jesus's feet, wherever he could go. And now it's not restrained to anybody's feet. Now it is completely um, throughout the world. And now God can work in any heart whatsoever. Um, and this is because of what Jesus did. The limitation of the gospel was strictly man's fault. So there's that. The Mormon church does not believe in the Trinity like whatsoever. That is not a thing that the Mormons believe. Um, you will find this common denominator as a major hangup for a lot of cults. Uh, when it comes to cults, they have, uh, they have to differentiate themselves from Christianity in this way because of the original temptation. What was the original uh, temptation? The original temptation is you will be like God, right? That's the whole point is that you will get to be like God. Now, the question is, how can I be like God, okay, when there's a trinity? How can I be like God when all of the positions of this corporate level are already taken, right? If you have a trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those are all God. So, <laughs> how is it that you can be God when all of the positions are taken up in the corporation? Right. So let's say, oh, I wanted to go work at NASA. Okay. I go up there and I say, hey, excuse me, sir. I'd like to, to be an astronaut, please. And he says, oh, sorry. All of the positions have been filled. Um, go kick rocks. You know, that's what they'll go tell me, you know, because that's it. You know, I don't deserve to take it over. But that's the reason why they get rid of the Trinity is because now it's not just three seats. It's not just three positions in the eternal life. It is everyone. In fact, it even gets more and more blasphemous the more that we dig into this. Okay, Genesis 3.5 says, you know, that you will be like God. So the best way to elevate the original temptation is to remove the seeds of eternal truth, of a trinity. The Mormons believe in what's called the three personages. Okay, which is the first same word, different uh, definition that we arrive at for today. All right. Um, they don't believe in Trinity. They will never use the word Trinity, which I'm surprised of. They, sh they really should have. Uh, I mean, they're really good at twisting words. They really could have taken that into its own thing, but they will not use the word Trinity whatsoever. They are not Trinitarians whatsoever. In fact, if anything, they're more like, they more have a dichotomy, in my opinion. It's more of a dichotomy. It's not really a Trinity. Um, and the reason why I say that is because in their, you know, cult, uh, they believe that um, the Holy Spirit is eternal. They believe that God the Father is eternal. Um, but they don't believe that Jesus was eternal. Now, they'll say that he's eternal, but you'll see all that in a minute. The best way to elevate the original temptation is to remove the seeds of eternal life. So they don't believe they believe in three personages. All right. So a lot of people would typically describe the Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. That's a lot of people say. Now, this persons and personages are two different words. They mean something different. Now, in, in Mormonism, they also use the word persons, but the personages 
are what really kind of brings it to its real definition. Now, First Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and the man is Christ Jesus. Okay, there's only one God. Now, the Mormon Church believes that all three of these are different gods. Okay, there are three gods. There is, it's not a, um, it is a tri-god, a, a triplet, triple god recipe. But then there's also infinite gods, because we, to the Mormon religion, is actually that we become gods, and God the Father is actually one of those that were human and then became God um, later. So personages, and at times, they call persons, require autonomy. That's one of the most important things is that they are individual. They are completely separate, but they have the same cause. Okay, so that's kind of like, how they, but they have to make sure that they're different. Okay, because we're, we all have to be God somehow. Okay, this is all back to Eden. Okay, the term personages is significant in Mormon theology because it emphasizes the individuality and the personhood of these beings. Now, I thought they were gods, but it has to be personhood as well. Because, how can it be personhood and not God? God and personhood are essentially interchangeable in the Mormon religion. Uh, the personhood, and if you're not a Mormon, then you're a Gentile, and you're just cast to hell, essentially. So, the personhood of these beings, as opposed to seeing them as abstract impersonal forces... Mormons believe that God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are real and tangible beings who have personalities, emotions, and intelligence who interact with human beings in a personal and meaningful way. How, how nice. This emphasis on the personhood of God and other divine beings is one of the defining features of Mormon theology. It is reflected in their belief in a personal God who is all intimately involved with the lives of his children and their practice of prayer and personal revelation. That means of communicating with him. Okay, so when I was a young Christian, I used to believe in personal revelation. I used to believe in that. I actually used to believe a lot of things that Mormons believed, and I had no idea that they were Mormon beliefs. All right, you've got uh, age of accountability. You've got, um, you know, uh, the personal revelation, and a few other things I can't really think off the top of my head. But these are two major pillars in my life that I had to get rid of, um, because Satan is a uh, Satan. He, he rhymes all over the place. In even bad theology, and even in bad Christian—I mean, in bad Christian um, circles, and in bad theology altogether—Satan rhymes, and he wants you to be like God. That's the most important piece here. This is the first thing he ever told Eve, and that is the first—that is the only thing that applies to man's pride. Doctrine and Covenants one thirty twenty-two. Listen to this very carefully. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personages, but is a personage of spirit. So you have three different gods. God the Father, he is eternal, but has a physical body. God the Son, not eternal, 
because he was created by the Father, has a physical body. The Spirit, eternal, but does not have a physical body. Okay, so they kind of have all of the things that the other person doesn't have. Okay, it's like God God is eternal, and so is the Holy Spirit, but one has a physical body, one doesn't. One was created, one was not created. It's like they just kind of have this triangle of, like, if this, then that, (laughs) you know? So the Father, Mormons believe that God the Father is eternal and has always existed. They also believe that he has a physical body of flesh and bones. We hadn't seen that. Um, be, what, let's, let's, let's see that. Is he in heaven? Is he in the uh, celestial kingdom? I mean, how do, we, how do we see this physical body? Because doesn't the existence of physical mean outside of metaphysical? Like, doesn't that mean that it has to be manifested in some sort of way here on earth? I'm just curious because I, I don't know. Like Jesus manifested himself here. He got himself here. He was born of a virgin and all that stuff. So he has a physical body of flesh and bones and they do not believe that he was created. Rather, they believe that he is the literal father of the spirits of all human beings. That includes Jesus. And that includes Lucifer. They believe that God created Lucifer and God created Jesus. But where did everything come from? If Jesus, if everything comes out of Jesus, if, if all things were created through Christ, then how is it that that's, that's the case? Because we can't have everything and then something separate from everything. Okay. When it comes to the Father, they believe that God the Father is a physical manifestation and not a spiritual one. That God the Father is actually the literal parent to Jesus. As well, he was like us, merely man who became a spiritual supreme. Okay, now this is out of the book Teaching of Presidents of the Church, Lorenzo Snow. This is in chapter 6. As man is now, God was. So as I am now, God was once like me. And as God is now, man might be. So what God is now, I'm going to get there. So that's what that's, that's what that's selling you. Okay. And so that's what they're trying to tell you is that God used to be a human being. And now he's a spiritual supreme. But I don't understand this. This is, this is a contradiction. Because if God is currently a physical manifestation, where does that put us? Because if God was, where was he a physical manifestation? Because where we are now is we are on planet Earth. Okay, we are a physical manifestation on planet Earth. Was God a a physical manifestation in in the uncreated universe in between the distance between time space and material but that's impossible because there was no material there was no space for that material to exist in there was no time to measure the space of which the distance of the material existed in okay so it doesn't make any sense how was god once like us and then through him he created us I can't create anything. 
So in what timeline does this work out of? Was it that there was God in this in the Holy Spirit? That's 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 assumed. Okay, God and the Holy Spirit are two different things. And then God the Father, who was like us, don't know where, don't know how, but at some point he was not like us and then created Jesus and then out of Jesus created everything. I'm struggling with that concept. All right, let's talk about Jesus. That's the most important thing here. Jesus, the Son. God the Father, now we're the Son. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is a literal, bodily Son of God. Now, let's pause for a moment. What they mean by Son is they mean born. They mean created. They mean begotten. They mean fleshly developed. They mean finite. They mean that God created him. Okay, this is not the same as Christianity, where Jesus was at the beginning of time. <laughs> John 1, where the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When they're talking about the Word in John, they're talking about Jesus Christ. All right, they believe, even Mormons agree with that. They believe that Jesus was not created in the same... Now, now, try to wrap your head around this, okay? Jesus is also an eternal being who has always existed. They believe that Jesus was not created in the sense that he did not exist before he was born. But rather that he was begotten of the Father in a unique and divine way. Listen to how nondescript this is, guys. He says, okay, well, oh, well, he was eternal, of course. Uh, he was, they've always, he's always existed. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, he was born. <laughs> it's like, okay, so which one is it? These are two answers inside of one answer. You've given me two opposing contradictions. He is an eternal being who was never created, but he was begotten oh, a different word than created even though we both know what that is he was born okay of the father in a unique and divine way mormons also believe that jesus has a physical body of flesh and bones which is partially true which is true okay he did come down from heaven into a human body okay which was resurrected after his death on the cross okay now, did he ascend into heaven? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if they believe in the ascension or not. I'd, I'd actually really like to, to hear that one. But here it is. The Doctrine of Covenants 93.21 And now, verily I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father, and I am the firstborn. So, this is where it is different. But you have to understand that when a Mormon says the words in the beginning, they are talking about when creation started. They're not talking about the beginning, if there was one, of eternity. They're not talking about Jesus and God were there together before creation. They are talking about the creating of everything. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about 
things. They're not talking about everything. They're not talking about the microatoms. They're not talking about the black matter. They're not talking about the concept of the universe beginning and ending. They're, they are essentially saying that God was God, but he was also a man just like us. And from the beginning of material, God the Father begat Jesus. So, you have to understand that when a Mormon says the words in the beginning, they are talking about when creation starts, not the beginning of eternity. This is one of those subtle tricks they use to shift the meaning of words. Jesus is eternal, and Jesus was not created because everything was created out of him. Read John 1. Please, please read John 1. You cannot have someone who is created and then them create everything. How can you have everything and then him be a thing that everything came out of? It doesn't make any sense. This is a contradiction. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself. Listen to this dichotomy that Romans 1.25 presents. They served the things that God created instead of the creator, singular, himself. Who is worthy of eternal praise? Amen. There is a distinction between what God has made and the creator himself. Okay, there is the creator and created. All right, it's a really great animation online of these two things. All right, it's like a stick man, animator, and animation. It's really great, but there is a distinction. Because out of the animated, okay, you can't have animation. All right, you cannot have something be derivative of itself, it becomes this infinite regress and it's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense. Therefore, there are not ripples of creations like those Russian Matruska dolls, I think that's what it calls, Matruska dolls, where God the Father created Jesus and then everything came out of Jesus. This just isn't biblical. It's not found in John, 9, John 1. It's not found in John 1. It's just not the way it goes. It didn't say... And God created Jesus, and Jesus created everything. No, it says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, the created God. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what it said. However, when a Mormon hears the word created, they think of the earth. And the time that the earth was created, they would agree. They would say, yes, yes, of course. Everything was created out of the, um, everything was created through Christ. Oh, John 1, I completely agree. That's where we agree, man. Of course, but they're not talking about everything. They're talking about everything. They're talking about things. They're talking about material. They're talking about the earth. They're not talking about things. They're talking about, they're, they're not talking about every single thing. Like and it's it's crazy, but here's a great example of this that I wanted to that I wanted to bring into because I found this really great interview between a Mormon and a Christian, and I think it's very very important. I think it's one of the greatest uh, videos that you can find on the internet. So I just wanted to share this and then I'll I'll, I'll bring it back. Here we go. World, huh? Jesus was our brother. So Jesus didn't create us. We're all brothers. And no, sisters. Jesus did not create us. God created us. 
But you God said the Father created us. But the okay. Bible says that everything that was made was made by Jesus. Okay. So how do we get around that? Through God. God directed everything. He said, Jesus, go down to Okay, this, this is the go problem. I got you. But but if Jesus didn't create everything, right? If Jesus is created, he couldn't create everything. Well, you're talking about things. Everything. We're not things. We're people. Right, no, no. Okay, let me read this to you real quick. Colossians 1 and 16. Speaking of Christ, for by him are all things created that are in heaven and that is in earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. All things, everything. All right, so, let, so it's exhausting let, let, the language. Let, let, let's, let's roll here. Go for it. In, we're going back to John. John 1. In the beginning, yeah, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Yeah. And the Word was God. Yeah. The same was in the beginning with God. Was the Word okay? God or was wait it a minute. God? Wait a minute, wait a minute. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Right, okay? right. So let's stay with, let's stay with that. We're going all things were made by him. Mm -hmm. Does that include Lucifer? No, no, no. It said all no, things. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. All things on this earth. No, See, we're not talking about, no, no. We're not talking about people. You have to add okay. something to it to make it say that. You just added okay, no, on go. this earth. In you, 14, it's so Oscar, right? Oscar. Okay. And the word was made flesh. Dwelt okay. among us. Wait a minute, we go back here. And the word was with God. Yes. The word was with God. Not yes. the word was, not yes. the word was, Wait, it you, says the word was with God. And then what's the next so word? So they're two separate things. The word was with God and then what? The word was God. Okay. But it also says here that, uh, it says here that, uh, uh, and the word was made flesh. Yeah. And dwelt among flesh. us. We believe And that. we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Agreed. Of the Father. Agreed. Okay. His Wait, body. All right. Wait a the body I have prepared so, for you. So when Jesus was baptized. Yeah. Okay. And we heard a voice out of heaven said, this is my, this beloved, is my beloved son, son no more, please. Yes. We believe that. Was, is he a ventriloquist? No, do you because, think... Because do you Jesus... Think, wait, wait, wait. I think I, I know the confusion. Yeah. Do you think that I'm saying that Jesus is the Father? Yeah, you're saying they're no. one. No, 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 no. I'm not saying Jesus is the Father. I'm saying Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. I'm saying they have one being, one nature. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. There is a distinction in the persons, but not in the being. I'm confused. I can simplify it. I can simplify it. I can simplify it. Simplify it, okay? Who created? Who created? Who created all things? Well, no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, so Colossians 1, 15 through 16. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made all things we can see and the things that we can't see. That's the point. Such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities of the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Lastly, how they rationalize the cross. This is where it gets a little dicey, to say the least. Mormons do not believe that the cross is the sole or exclusive means of salvation, but rather it is one part of a larger process of faith, repentance, and obedience to God's commands. Salvation is a process. It is not a completed cause from the, the, from the cross. This is the major bifurcation of, of Christianity and Mormonism 100% of the way. 
This is it. This is the absolute bifurcation. This is where we split and say, you are not Christians anymore. You guys need to repent of this because this is bad. This is really bad. Gospel Principles, Chapter 3. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop right there. Perfect. That's it. Don't change anything. Don't change. No, don't. And. Oh. Oh, no, not the and. Not the buts. Not the ands and the buts. And through obedience to his gospel. Faith means relying completely on Jesus Christ. Trusting in his infinite power, intelligence, and love. So in Christ alone? No. Not in Christ alone. Through obedience, through our works, through us. We're the ones. It, we are part of the process. This is a really great example. There's a really great example with Ben Shapiro. He says this amazing thing, and I, and I use this all the time. When you have a word like justice, okay? You have like the word, let's just use the word justice, okay? When you have a word like justice, and then you put a word in front of it, like a modifier, the, the original word is gone. However, the psychological effect is that you think that that word is the same as the last one. And I'll use the word justice. When you use the word social justice, they are completely different terms. However, the psychological effect is that you think social justice and justice are the same. So that's the, diff the, the, the thing that we're doing here. So they're saying, oh, we're, we're saved through faith through Jesus Christ. What, what, and, and what? And obedience. And works. Salvation, you are limiting Christ's atonement by using works as part of your plan. Okay? You are limiting Christ's death. No matter how much they want to tell you that they are that it's an unlimited sanctification, they're like, oh, it's completely unlimited. They are not being honest with this. They are lying. They're saying that this is about works that bring salvation. It's not just a, it's, this is not a Christian belief, right? I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're Jeffrey Dahmer, who, who is a homosexual who drilled holes in people's heads or and killed people, okay? He literally converted to Christianity. Who am I to judge that? Okay, there are, <laughs> and, and it gets worse as we continue to go along. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to read off a few real Bible verses, okay? Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is a blanket statement. Those who are in Jesus Christ, you cannot be condemned. Bottom line. There is no caveat to that. This is Jesus Christ is the only one who can take credit for our salvation. There is no one else. Nobody else can do that. Who else? Who can take credit for our salvation other than and other than Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us? 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God. There's only one God. And there is one meteor between God and men and the man Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins and the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit.
Romans 10.9, because you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. There's no, and, and if you confess and you believe in your heart and you believe that God raised from the dead and if you obey all my commandments and you do this and you go do a mission and you go do this and that, you give your 10%, you do all that and this and that, what happens when uh, people sin so badly? And again, I, also, I asked this question last time. I said, what if you die in the middle of a sin and you cannot confess it? Is that like a Catholic thing where you're just kind of like having to go into like this intermediary kind of thing? I mean, what, what's, what's the answer to that? I don't know the answer to that. So I'd like to know that. So now we're going to segue into the final derangement of this evening. Blood atonement. Blood atonement teaches that there are some sins that God cannot forgive by the works of Calvary, and therefore the sinner must have his own blood spilled. This blasphemous doctrine not only diminishes the power and the purpose of Christ's blood, but glorifies the atoning power of the blood of the Mormon sinner. While steadfastly observed by Mormon fundamentalists, this anti-Christian principle originated with Joseph Smith and was furthered by later Mormon prophets. This troublesome doctrine of blood atonement blemishes the wholesome public image required by Mormonism's leaders. Today, the brethren in Salt Lake City still grapple over the predicament they find themselves in when having to both affirm and deny blood atonement. For example, the late Mormon apostle Bruce R. McConkie, in his book Mormon Doctrine, denied that the church ever practiced or taught blood atonement. Yet on the same page, stated that because the blood of Christ is not sufficient to forgive certain sins, the Mormon God requires man to have his own blood spilled. On the 27th of June, we were carrying on our life as usual and um, happened to be the 144th anniversary of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. My half-brothers came into our office and murdered my husband. At the same time, there were three other consecutive deaths uh, going on. My brother-in-law, Duane, and his eight-year-old daughter, Jenny, was with him, and they also killed her. Our names were on the list of, uh, to be atoned for. Uh, my father uh, believed that we were traitors to God's cause and that our blood must be shed to atone for the sin of uh, turning against light and knowledge, as he supposed. Blood atonement is if you have charity enough uh, for uh, someone to save them, uh, the shedding of their blood is the only way that they can atone for certain sins. People really thought they were doing a favor in my great-grandfather's day to shed the blood, save their soul, and it's still taking place today. My great-grandfather John D. Lee was one of the Mormon men who were called avenging angels or destroying angels. It was their duty, their obligation, to cut the throats, shed the blood of people who were apostate Mormons, who were, who were guilty of speaking against the, the authorities. Jesus shed his blood that, uh, as an infinite sacrifice, but there are some sins that the blood of Jesus cannot atone for, and there it therefore it requires the shedding of uh, that man's blood to atone. The idea of blown ato blood atonement, the idea of blood atonement, 
emerged in the early days of Mormonism and was popularized by the leader Brigham Young. We all know Brigham Young University, BYU, let's go. However, uh, Jedediah M. Grant and Brigham Young, they spoke for the need of sinners to pay the price. Huh, I wonder if there was somebody who could have done that already. All right, but somebody needs to pay the price for their transgressions through the spilling of their own blood. Yes, this teaching was often linked to the concept of capital punishment, and with some of the early Mormons believing that the death penalty was an absolute necessity in a form of blood atonement for the certain crimes. Yes, there are crimes that after you become a Mormon and, assumably, in their eyes, a Christian, that after Jesus has died this horrible death, and after Jesus has resurrected and killed death, that wasn't good enough. And now we need to shed your blood for crimes that you've committed. And it really just so happens that the people that are getting killed off are the ones that have committed the sin of being excommunicated and wanting to leave the church. <laughs> it just so happens that little quinky dink of the people that have the information that want, they want to reveal out to the world of how bad this is, they go, oh, you know what? Time for blood atonement, brother. So, I wanted to make sure this was real. All right, I spent a lot of time on this because I really wanted to make sure this seems like something that is so outlandishly crazy that I didn't even know it could possibly exist. Okay, so, Brigham Young considered a prophet, a seer, and a revelator, and his teachings are regarded as an important part of church history and doctrine. So, this is where ChatGBT gets a little wishy-washy. Is Brigham Young so important that he becomes Brigham Young University. Let's put his name on everything. He's such a great, profound prophet and seer and all of this stuff and revelator. And his teaching are considered doctrine. Or have they kind of like walked this back and they're like, hey, you know what? We're actually going to disavow this. Both sides of their mouth is what they talk out of. I'll tell you what. So here you go. Brigham Young is considered a prophet, seer, and revelator, and his teachings are regarded as an important part of church history and doctrine. As the second president of the LDS Church, he played a major role in the explanation, in the expansion, and development of the church, and many of his teachings and writings continue to be studied and respected by the church members today. So the question is, if a man is speaking for God, is he speaking perfectly? If I produce something as a prophet that is a supposedly from God, is it 100% correct? Should we believe Isaiah? Should we believe all the prophets, Obadiah, all of them? I, I, know, I know more than that. I know at least Samuel. <laughs> but should we believe them? That's the question. Should we believe these prophets? Do Mormons think that Brigham Young is as, port as important as the Apostle Paul? This is what I asked ChatGPT. Answer. In the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS, Brigham Young is considered an important figure in the early church and is recognized as being the second prophet and president of the LDS Church. However... He is not considered to be on the same level of his importance as the Apostle Paul in the LDS uh, theology. The, in LDS belief, 
Paul played a critical role in the early Christian church as a missionary apostle and the author of several books of the New Testament. His teachings and writings are considered important sources of doctrine and guidance for members of the LDS church and other Christian denominations. Brigham Young, on the other hand, is primarily remembered for his role in leading and organizing in the LDS church during a critical period of its history. While his teachings and writings are still studied and revered by many, they are not considered to be on the same level of authority. But what are the words that uh, they use to, to describe Brigham Young? So I continue to ask. I said, okay, well, isn't Paul considered a prophet in the LDS church? And they said in the, in the LDS, the Apostle Paul is considered to be a prophet in addition to his role as an apostle and missionary. His teachings and writings are considered to be inspired by God and are considered to be an important source of doctrine and guidance for members of the LDS church. I was like, okay, that's cool. Okay, well, uh, isn't Brigham Young also considered to be an apostle, prophet in the uh, Mormon church? Yes, <laughs> yes, Brigham Young is considered to be a prophet of Christ, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS. He served as the second prophet and president. Okay, so in a roundabout way, okay, are they or are they not prophets? If they look like a prophet, if they smell like a seer, and it quacks like an apostle, then it must be from God, right? If, if Brigham Young is a, is a prophet, then he's speaking from God. And therefore, what he says is ultimately true. If Paul is also an apostle and he's speaking from God, then what he says is ultimately true. So, for example, Brigham Young is not an issue at all when you want to make him a university, when you want to put his name all over the place, because, oh, he's such a revered guy. We love him. But then also, when it comes to the, to the blood atonement, Okay, they're like, oh, <laughs> wait, so wait a minute, hold on. We disavow that. The whole church disavows that. They say, oh, we're not, we don't do that. That's absolutely not what we do. So, which side is it? Can you disavow and also revere? No, you cannot. Is something from God, but also just from Brigham Young? No, that's not, that's not true. You can't be an apostle and speak out of your own tongue while you're also producing stuff. You can't be a prophet of God and also just, just do your own thing. In a sermon delivered in 1856, Brigham Young said this. He said, There are sins that men commit for which they cannot receive forgiveness in this world for, or and that which is to come if they had their eyes opened to see their true condition they would be perfectly willing to have their own blood spilt upon the ground that the smoke thereof might ascend to heaven as an offering for their sins. They are literally advocating for killing people and burning them like an offering, like in the old Jewish ways, but humans, like straight up Aztec ideas. You don't believe me? Go to, go to Journal of Discourses, Volume 4. Page 53. And you know what? If you can't find Journal of Discourses, I have it. All right? Email me and I will send you this exact PDF. Because I have all of it. In another sermon delivered in 1856, Brigham Young stated, I say there are men and women that I would advise to go to the president immediately. 
himself. I would say, I would tell them to go to the president immediately. Me. I tell them to go to me immediately and ask them to appoint a committee to attend their case and let them be placed and selected that the committee shall shed their blood. Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 219. Jebediah M. Grant, counselor to Brigham Young, also preached about the idea of blood atonement. In a sermon delivered in 1856, Grant stated, There are sins that can be atoned for by offering upon an altar as in the ancient days. As in the ancient days, you can just put them on an altar and have a burnt sacrifice of a human being, like an, like an Aztec, okay? There are sins that the blood of a lamb or calf or a turtle dove cannot remit, but they must be atoned for by the blood of a man. I wonder where we would be able to find that. Hmm. Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 49. I have it. Don't buy it. Don't look for it. It's not anywhere on the internet. I had sources. <laughs> I had to find them. I had to track them down. Because this stuff is classified by the church. I am so thankful that someone said it, though. I'm so thankful that people are honest about their disgust about sin. Because that's what this is. They're, they're saying, oh, this, this sin, oh my gosh. They need to be killed for that sin. Oh, that's disgusting. And other people's sin. Because they're also looking at themselves and what they're doing. They feel that way about themselves. They're not just feeling that way about others. They're feeling that way about themselves, too. They're like, oh, that sin, this sin that they feel guilt over. Their guilt is unsatiated. It's disgusting. However... It just shows which God between the Mormon God or, or my, my God, which one has grace? Which one has actual grace? Mine does. Because mine looks at every single sinner. Every single sinner. The Jesus that I worship is the Jesus who went to the cross for everyone. He doesn't require me to go up some sort of hypothetical mountain. He came down the mountain for me. I was in the mud. I was lower than dirt in my sin. Psalms 40. I'm going to read that. Psalms 40. That's a great one. Psalms 40. Let's get that one up. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders that you have done. The things you have planned for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin you do not require. This theology 
is demonic. This theology is killing people. Has killed people. It is a multi-billion dollar industry. Luring people in and preying on people in their insecurities, in their weaknesses, their brokenheartedness, their lost. Preying on those lost, broken people. And here's what I know. That someday that, that sky is going to crack open. And every single one of these monsters who lead these broken-hearted, sorrowful, pitiful people that have nowhere to go. All of them will be burning in hell. And that brings me great joy. I pray for them that they repent of their sins and they start to infect every single person that's in their, their authority. I pray that if you're listening to this, that you repent of this great sin. Because it's not about blood sacrifices. It's not about the twisting of scripture. It's not about anything. It's just about Jesus Christ. It is just about the Lord, the man who died and killed death and those that are willing and able to turn to him will never be cast out. God says there is nothing that can pull you out of my hand. That is including sins. Whatever that is. Whatever sins that is, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, died once and for all. For the worst sins of the world. John 3.16 Those who call on him and believe have been drawn in by God. John 6.44 The Father to save all of those who believe, no matter the horrors that they have committed, or shameful acts that have been committed by those sinners, they are fully forgiven by nothing that they can do. Ephesians 2.9 but by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to resurrect and kill death and the sting of death, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 58, for those who are elected, Romans 9, 18 through 23. This is a, this is a farce. I hope this finds you well.